Okay, hello everyone. This is Elizabeth again here with Private Practice Workshop. For those of you who don't know me, I'm John's virtual assistant and I'm also a marriage and family therapist in New York City. I'm really excited today to be here with Annie Schusler. Annie is a business coach, the host of the podcast Rebel Therapist Podcast. With her Rebel Therapist programs, she helps therapists, healers, and coaches make an impact beyond a traditional private practice. So thanks so much for being here today, Annie. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. And I love being able to see New York City behind you in the window. It's like yes, definitely so much fun. Windows with the buildings in the back. Yeah. Um, but today we're going to be learning just about how Annie figured out the sweet spot of group programs and how to create them to be successful and keep participants engaged. But before we jump into all of that, Annie, can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. So I am in San Francisco. I live in a compound with, which is actually like a duplex with my sister's family downstairs and my family upstairs. And so I'm a business coach. I have been for about 12 years now. And so I help therapists and all kinds of healers to create programs, usually online programs, although sometimes a brave soul wants to create something in person like a retreat or an, a live workshop in person. And we just work on making those programs amazing and getting them to the people who really need them. Yeah, that's amazing. So with group programs, there's a lot, obviously, that goes on behind the scenes. A lot goes into creating the content. It's usually something we're pretty passionate about. It's like, that's yeah. kind of the reason why we wanted to make the group in the first place. So a little bit about your story is that you initially had a group program. You got participants to mm -hmm. join in, um, but you started to realize that they weren't really engaging with your content the way you were really hoping for them mm -hmm. to. Um, I think it could be easy in that moment to kind of be like, oh, it's the content. That's what's to blame. It's not good enough. People don't like it. I did something wrong. But when did you start to recognize or start to question, I guess, maybe this isn't necessarily the content of this group, but more so maybe something else? Yeah. It's really, to me, it's always a little bit of both. And in fact, it's a challenge not to change too many things at once, because like you said, we're obsessed with the results of our participants. This is the thing that we want to do. So for me, moving people beyond private practice, helping them create their own programs has been my obsession for quite a while. And so whenever I, in the beginning, when I, when I was Oh, I think you're muted, Annie. How did I do that? How did I mute oh, my there you go. You're back. How about that? <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> right in the middle. Okay, so I was obsessed with getting people these results, and some of them got those results, some of them didn't. And so I changed a few things at once. And I also kind of want to, if I could time travel, I would say maybe change one big thing at once so you know what's working, what's not working. 
Well, I did a couple of things the first time. I ran it as an eight-week program the first time, and I also had too much content. So the second time I ran it, I streamlined that content so that I was giving people a smaller amount that they could actually implement all of. And so that was kind of one of my first lessons. And I've stuck with that is like, give them as much as they can actually implement. It can feel like, yeah, I'll just give them more and more and more. I have so much to teach them. No, (laughs) you have too much to teach them. So giving them really the bare minimum of what they really need to move through the process and get to the result. And I also experimented with the time frame, like how much time am I giving them? And it turns out eight weeks was actually on the right track. I then moved it to a much longer program. So I, I tried it at, I believe, eight months. I tried it at six months. I also tried it at two days. So I really tried a lot of different time frames. And what I have landed on is five to six weeks, depending on whether they have a a break in the middle. Sometimes it's six, sometimes it's five. And the reason for that in this particular program, like this is not going to be the same for every program at all. But for this particular program, five to six weeks gives people enough time to really get in there and get something done, but it doesn't give them enough time to get lost and for life to get in the way. So it's a sustainable amount of time for most folks to really get a lot done and to not procrastinate. There's like no time to procrastinate, but there is enough time to get something significant done. So do you want me to talk a little more about like kind of what happened when I made it too long? Yeah, definitely. I think recognizing even from like your participants, like, oh, they're kind of disengaging. What's going mm-hmm. on? Like, is this, yeah, that whole kind of phase of like, maybe it's just like the time frame where like what you were saying, like life can get in the way and people mm-hmm. don't show up or they're kind of busy. Yeah. Yeah. So when we did it for, for eight weeks, everybody showed up at every call and the what they would ask for at the end was, we needed more time. We needed more weeks. We needed months. And so I listened to that and I thought, all right, let's give them months. Let's give them a lot of time. And then what I discovered is that if you, depending on what the goal is, if you spread it out, sometimes people will just take that much longer to get there. And so there's really, in this program, there are really tough decisions you've got to make, like your niche. What's the niche that you're going to work with? what is the format of the program you're going to create? So there are these tough decisions that there's no one right answer to. And if you have six months to make those decisions and to get your program out there, you may fall into perfectionism, procrastination, and this idea that it should take six months. And I actually want people to get their programs out there quickly and it's okay if they don't hit it out of the park the first time. Like I want them to get the experience of creating this thing, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work. So over six months, yeah, sometimes life would get in the way. And even if people were showing up to all the calls, they were just slowing down their progress. Mm -hmm. And 
So as I, as I shortened it, I then took it to another extreme and you're going to laugh at me. <laughs> I took it to a two day because I realized, okay, I can actually give people all of the information in an intensive of two days. That's going to work so well with people's schedules. They can carve out two days, even if they're incredibly busy, given enough notice, I'll give them all the information and then the implementation will happen afterward. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> that <laughs> also wasn't the right solution for this particular program because it's too easy then to learn everything that you're supposed to do and then just not implement because you're busy, because you've got a question you didn't know you had when you were there with the facilitator. So the two-day program worked, I would say, for less people than the longer one okay. because People didn't know what questions they had. And they also needed that accountability of like, when's my homework due? And are you going to give me feedback on my homework? All of that kind of stuff. So I found myself, I found my way back to a five to six week program. And again, not saying that's the sweet spot for everything. It's just for, you know, for this one. And I, I had to find it through experimenting, although maybe I didn't have to quite go to those drastic of extremes. Yeah. Well, I like what you're saying about how it needs to be long enough for people to like digest the information, be held mm-hmm. accountable, talk about it with other members and the facilitator, think of ideas, get questions answered, but short enough to the point where they're not overthinking it, getting perfectionistic. Is that whole idea of like we fill the gap with like the amount of time we're given is yes. what it'll take us to finish something. Whereas like you know, getting a month to do something, really, if we were given a week to do it, we could probably do it. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of this idea of like what you're saying, like, oh, I guess it takes that long to figure out my niche or to figure out, you know, these different topics. But really kind of having a little bit more pressure to do that will steer us away from overthinking, procrastinating, kind of all those things that come with nitpicking it a little bit too much. Totally, totally true. And sometimes people would even find themselves, find their way back to their original idea. (laughs) So I would so much rather that they just try that right away, see if it works, see if it lights them up, see how it works for their participants, and then take that information into the next round. Yeah, definitely. With programs and putting any kind of content out there kind of comes this vulnerability. Again, it's a thing you're really passionate about. You really Mm. want it to work and help people. You want them to feel like they're getting a lot out of it. They're improving in the ways you want them to improve. So it would make a lot of sense maybe how like having this perfectionistic mentality about it kind of comes into play almost as a way to like protect us from like negative feedback or like people not engaging the way we want them to. Do you have any like tips or suggestions for kind of what that mental block can do of perfectionism for people that are like really worried about that or kind of maybe overthinking their programs? Yeah, thank you for that. I think that there's there's a way that we've got to trust ourselves that part of the reason why you're the person to run the program that you want to run is because you care about it. You have raised your hand and you have said, not I am like the best in the world at this particular, solving this particular problem, but you're saying I am really dedicated to this and I'm going to give 
the people in this program, everything that I have, and I'm going to show up completely with what I know and with humility about what I don't know, I'm going to be there for them. And that is hugely valuable. So I think you're absolutely right that that is vulnerable. That is scary to show up as you actually are with all your superpowers, with all your experience, your knowledge and all that stuff, but imperfectly and knowing that you're going to be completely honest with your participants about what you do know, what you don't know, and trust the process, trust the moment that you're going to be able to give them what they need without packing it full of pre-recorded videos and, you know, 18 million bullet points of, of what you're going to provide. So without over-preparing, we usually create something much better when we're, when we're willing to show up as ourselves fully engaged. So I think there is a big, a big trust moment of leaping into, you know, you know, everything that you know, that brought you to this moment, you're ready enough. Like if you're 51% ready, Thea Monier just said this, um, a couple of weeks ago. If you're 51% ready, please jump in and please start helping because for one thing, there are already people who are 20% ready who have already jumped into the space. So mm-hmm. <laughs> come on in and and be of service. Yeah. I love that. Like that idea of the 51% because we can so many times think unless I'm 110% ready, unless I have this certain degree necessarily, or like a certain amount of experience, but just knowing enough and being passionate about it, it's something you really care about. That's enough to jump in. And I like this idea you're talking about too, of like experimenting with your group, right? Of like two days, eight months, like all these different like extremes, right? But it's almost this way of telling yourself, like, it's okay if this doesn't work out the way that I wanted it to. That just gives me more information. It's not a failure. It gives me something to work with, something to kind of use as a stepping stone. Um, I think it can be easy to, if we are more perfectionistic, to think that that's a failure and mm-hmm. all lost and we shouldn't be doing this. And it's a sign that maybe this is the wrong thing. But using the idea of making an experiment, I think is really helpful because then it's not this black and white answer. It's more like, oh, interesting. That didn't really work out the way I wanted it to, but that's a piece of information I can use to tweak the program to restructure it um, and not create this idea that it's a failure because it didn't work out the way we wanted it to. Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah. And I've seen this thing happen where when people are willing to jump in, they become so masterful because the way that we actually create the most amazing programs is by running them many times. And so I know Charlie Gilkey has said this thing in his book, Start Finishing. If something really matters to you, what's important is to start it right away. A lot of times we think the opposite. We think if it's really important to me, I better wait a few years and get perfect at it first. But actually we need to start quickly because that's how we're going to get great at it within the next few years. Yeah. And there's like that authenticity piece you were talking about is when we Mm -hmm. kind of just show up and are honest with the participants of this is how much I know, this is what I'm still learning. That's also just relatable for them to be able to relate to you of like, yeah, same. We're all kind of learning this together. You do know more than me. I'm learning from you, but we're all, you know, humans in this trying to figure it out. 
Um, and yeah, just knowing that you don't have to prove anything with it. If it's something that you care a lot about, it's okay to just show up as you are. And people really do appreciate that. Yeah. And as you're saying that, it's making me realize that's something I've gotten so much better at. I think early on as a business coach, I felt so much more embarrassed or insecure about moments when I didn't know something. Like someone would ask a question about SEO that I wasn't quite sure about. And I would just be like, um, 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 let me tell you what I do know. And, uh-huh. you know, kind of panicking. And now it's not that I, st- I mean, of course I still feel insecure sometimes. I still get embarrassed sometimes, but I feel so much more comfortable saying like, that is so not my area of expertise. Let me tell you who I trust around that stuff. And like, if we're going to talk about Facebook ads, I'm going to tell you what I think, what I know, and I'm going to tell you who to turn to if we're talking about legal stuff, anything. Like I know certain things really well, and then all of the other 99% of things I do not know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that feels so much more okay to me now. Yeah, I love that. What do you kind of, or what was that process like? for you, I guess, to, uh, did you ever like struggle, I guess, with that perfectionism in the programs of this needs to be amazing? And what were those like stepping points? Like, did someone help you through that? Was it just something you realized within yourself of like, I don't need to maybe know everything. It's okay. Yeah, I think one thing was, so one of my best friends, Karen Smiley, has kind of held this the whole time. Like when she would hear me saying, oh, I have to learn more about this thing and that thing and every single thing in business. And she would always say, that's not you. Like, this is what you're great at. So kind of letting myself listen to her finally was helpful, but also seeing people getting results. Like, I think that is just because that's what I'm obsessed with. That's what we're all obsessed with getting to see my participants get results and seeing, yeah, they got a lot from the process. And some of that is me. They got a lot from their own hard work, mostly. And then also other resources. Like it doesn't have to all come from me. And that would be my ego that would be saying like, I must provide absolutely everything. Yeah. So that combo of things of just seeing like, dude, it works out. Like we don't, we don't need to be perfect. In fact, that is just not going to happen. <laughs> right. It's almost this idea of like master of all trades. It's like if I'm the facilitator, if I'm the one doing this and I have to be this ultimate guide for everything that you have questions about and I have to know everything. But at the end of the day, working like as a team too, of like, no, I know this person. I know that person. They actually do know this really well. Whereas for me, maybe I kind of know about it, but you get so much more out of it. Like you talk to this person and the fact you even have that connection, that's super helpful. They wouldn't be able to, you know, talk to that person or have that conversation or know who is specialized in it um, and get the most out of it. And so, yeah, I think that's a really good point of like focus on the things that you are really good at. And that's what's really going to help people when they come to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I love bringing in guest teachers now because I'm never – going to be a legal expert. So now I bring in attorneys and and I, I actually think I'm pretty good with systems and platforms, but I'm not as good as the person I bring in as a guest teacher. So that's really fun to just get to sit and listen and facilitate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um, what's like a crucial early mistake that you learned from? I know we're talking about a few of them with group programs, but is there like one you can look back on 
be like, oh yeah, that was like a pretty big mistake, but I also took a lot away from it. Yeah. Okay. So one I kind of touched on, but it really, I think it's really worth thinking about <laughs> mm -hmm. is when I got the feedback saying we needed more time to just take that at face value and to think, okay, that means we needed more time instead of slowing down and thinking, okay, what does that mean? What is it that these folks are thinking more time would have given them and, and let me puzzle through how to solve that for them? So I think like taking feedback and not necessarily taking it literally, but taking it and, and kind of working through, all right, what is it that this, what's underneath the feedback and how can I solve that for people? Yeah. So when they were kind of saying we need more time instead of maybe just it being like, oh, that's literally all it is, is more mm -hmm. time kind of figuring out why does it feel like, you know, that's what is necessary. Does this feel rushed? Do you feel overwhelmed? Are there things going on? And kind of figuring out those pieces underneath. Yeah. Cause they're trying to help by solving it for me and giving me that feedback. Like they're they're being really generous and trying to say like, well, here's the problem I ran into. I think the solution would be this. And so listen to that. It might be the solution they're coming up with might be like exactly what you want to try. Or it might be like, look at that. Yeah, exactly what you said. Let's see how to solve this. Mm -hmm. Is there a mistake you see other therapists make that you work with that are creating their group programs? Is there like a kind of a trend where they all kind of realize something or learn something from certain mistakes? Yeah. Can I give two? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one is to uh, start out with a really general niche. And you can do that in private practice. Like I've seen it might not be my favorite choice for people to do, but you can have a completely full private practice with a pretty general niche. I just know that because I see a lot of my friends do it. But if you're moving beyond private practice, you're moving into kind of the global space and you really need to niche, or at least you really probably should niche a lot harder and a lot more narrow. So that's one is like going through that process of niching and not avoiding it, not, not trying mm -hmm. to bypass that. The other one I see is, oh, and I want to say about that, I understand that it's painful. There are ways to get through it. People get through it mm -hmm. <laughs> and come up with niches that really work for them. And I know it's not easy. And then the other one is something that we've kind of talked about is going behind the scenes and thinking, all right, if I'm going to create something beyond private practice, the first step is to create this amazing program, like maybe a a totally self-led course that's going to take people through a really beautiful in-depth process that includes videos and audios and all kinds of assignments. And I'm going to just start preparing that. And that just almost never works. And it breaks my heart because it either they don't accomplish it because that's a lot to do on your own mm -hmm. without feedback. Or they do accomplish it, like that would be a small percentage of folks. And then really most of the time nobody purchases it or very few people purchase it because they didn't create it in relationship with folks. 
So yeah. I would say those are a couple of like really big mistakes or misconceptions that I see. Right. So with that second one, you're saying it's, you're kind of talking about how you're saying like kind of more isolated and like creating something on your own and like putting so much work into it and not really getting feedback and then putting it out into the world. And it's not really, hasn't been done in relationship. There hasn't really been feedback and that's a lot harder to get people to actually buy or like engage with. Yeah. And you created the wrong thing. And it's not that it, it may have been really joyful for you, but it didn't quite answer what people were in, in that particular niche were asking for. And so it wasn't created in response to actual people and their questions and, and their statements about like, this is what's missing for me. This is what I'm looking for. This is what's keeping me up at night. We really shouldn't guess at that because that's the most important thing to get right. Yeah. What do you feel like have been some of the most effective ways for you or other therapists to find out what people are wanting? Is it surveys? Is it community? Is it social media? Maybe all of the above. What are like the most effective ways to get that feedback? Yeah. The the number one thing that I see working for most folks is to mine their own memory bank. And so to think of a few particular people who you know if you met them at the right time, this I'm creating this program for them. Like I'm creating it for Elizabeth and Annie and Marcy. And like that's, I'm going to have them in mind and I'm going to remember what they said when they first started working with me. And if it's not past clients, then you're, you still want to make sure you're building it for very particular people. And those might be your friends. They may be people that you know a different way. They may be yourself. <laughs> One of them could be yourself. Mm-hmm. But you want to have the ability to mine your memory bank about what did they say when they first came to me? What do they say when they're talking about this problem that maybe they don't usually say in public? And what is it that they think is the solution to this problem? What have they already tried So really looking at those things and writing them down as close to that person's language as you can possibly get, that can actually get people really far. And it's kind of like creating what Tara McMullen would call a virtual focus group. So you're not actually going to talk to these people about it necessarily. If they're your therapy clients, super inappropriate, you wouldn't do that. (laughs) But you're just going to remember and go with your gut about what you know about these folks. And then another way is, like you said, surveys. So if there's a place where you can actually find those people and they're hanging out together, if, you ha- if you're lucky enough to have a niche like that, you could create a little Google form or type form form where you ask some open-ended questions, like how would you describe this problem? What do you think the solution is? What have you already tried? What are you most hoping for around this? those kinds of questions. And if the survey is being answered by someone who's really in your niche, it's going to be worth its weight in gold. And then one more thing is, is asking everyone, you know, do you know anybody who has this problem and would be willing to have a chat with me about it? A lot of times people will, because they know that this is causing them pain and they want a really good solution to get out there. So sometimes people are afraid to ask, but as long as it's ethical and you you do it in a non-pressured way, sometimes you can have those kinds of interviews 
as well. And then, yeah, social media can be a good place, depending on your niche, to go kind of ethically listen in and see what are the questions coming up here and where are people getting stuck and what are they looking for? Yeah, I love that idea of reaching out to someone maybe we don't know super well dealing with that problem. Because when I think about it, if I'm struggling with something or something's frustrating and there's not really an answer to it, if someone reached out and was like, I'm trying to create a program or some sort of guide to help people through this, I would be like, yes, I think that is amazing. That was super difficult for me. That would have been awesome if I had something like this. It would be great for other people to have that. That's such an answer to, you know, the super annoying thing. Um, I'd be more than willing, you know, to tell people all the stuff that I like wanted or needed and the frustrating aspects of it just because, yeah, you want that to be fixed. Like there's just something in us that like wants there to be an answer to those sorts of things. And so I like that idea of reaching out to someone and not being afraid to do that because they want probably to answer a lot of those questions. Oh my God, you're so right. Like if someone contacted me right now and they said, because my kid just left for college, my older kid just left for college. If someone said, are you a mom whose kid, whose first kid just left for college and you're having such a hard time with it, even though it's such a great thing, mm -hmm. you're not quite sure how to walk through this process. Like, you want to talk to me? I'd be like, yes, I want to talk to you. So yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree. Whatever it is that is that we're struggling with, we want to talk about it. Yeah, we want there to be that answer. And we want other people to have an easier time maybe going through it. Yes. Yeah. And two with um, the, so I guess another question I have when you were talking about um, kind of figuring out groups is how, so with being a therapist, being like a therapreneur, you know, this, this new word of like doing podcasts, doing YouTube, being a therapist, seeing clients, um, having group programs, and you do quite a few of those things. How did you find out, I guess, in terms of running a group that that was one of those streams of income that you wanted to do? Like, what about that mm -hmm. made you um, yeah, like attracted to that kind of avenue of all of the different things that we can do. Oh yeah. So for me, it, I think there's a different fit for everybody. And for me, what I noticed was, so I started with mostly one-on-one -on -one group, I mean, one-on-one -on -one group coaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching. And I found that some people could get really great results, but some people would just like stall out and feel really bad about it. And there was something about the accountability wasn't quite the same and as in a small group. So the first time I ran a small group as a business coach, I was like, damn, like people are getting so much more done. I'm not working harder, but they are. And there's something about the magic of that some people are so effective in one-on-one, -on -one, whether it's just them or their niche, one-on-one -on -one is the place to be. But for me, there's something magic about a small group and the energy that that brings. And even like a little bit of healthy competition or healthy, like seeing, all right, if she can do that, if they can do that, I'm going to do that too. <laughs> so, yeah. and then my groups grew and I found for me, at least for now, there's this sweet spot that is like 17 people or less for me. 
And if it gets bigger than that, I start to feel like people are a little bit lost. Hold on one second. My dog is making some noise and I oh, don't want good. him to distract people. So I'm gonna... I keep an eye on my dog too in the background here. <laughs> okay. So sorry about that. So yeah, it was about finding this sweet spot for me of like where I feel best and where I see people getting the best results. And so for me, that's small groups, 100%. Yeah. And it too, it's, you know, there's that healthy competition piece, but also just seeing other people do things that mm -hmm. we feel like, or we question, can I really do that? Am I really capable of that? But seeing someone in a similar place to us going through the same program, seeing, oh, they did that okay, maybe I can do that too. It's like this almost like paving the way thing yeah. you can get from being in a group of like, maybe my doubts really don't need to hold that much weight as I'm giving them. And maybe I could do that. Like she did it, you know, she's not very different from me or he's not that very different from me. And um, getting that confidence a little bit of like having someone kind of trailblaze that sometimes a little bit. Yes. And if it's a one-on-one -on -one situation, they could feel that about me. They could feel like, all right, well, so Annie's done what I'm trying to do, but they might feel like, but she's been doing it for longer. So that doesn't really count. Like they could come up with reasons, even if I think they're BS, like they could come up with reasons why I could do it and they couldn't. But yeah, when they see the folks who they just started this process with doing it, it's harder to write that off. Yeah, definitely. With, I know you're talking a little bit before about your why behind this specific group program you're doing now, but can you kind of tell us a little bit more about like the passion you have behind it? And at what point did you realize like that passion you wanted to create it into something other people could benefit from? Yeah, I think the main, the main thing that always comes to me is if we're working the way that brings us the most joy and gets us into our zone, then we are so much more effective in our lives, feel so much better. And then that frees up our energy to keep doing our work, not burning out. It, it helps us help people get better results. So that's become really my positive obsession is like, if I see somebody compromising on the way that they're working, on the way they're doing their healing work, it really bugs me. And I want them to step more into their superpowers and figure out a way to get into the, the way of working that's actually going to work best for them. So that's, you know, first that led me to helping people build their private practices. But then I found, at least for some folks, that can become sort of a cage as well. And so I'm always wanting to push forward into helping people liberate themselves into the kind of work that is going to work best. Yeah. And I, I know from reading from your website and listening to, I think, another podcast you were on recently or that you hosted, you're talking about like sustainability. And obviously, that's always a thing we're trying to figure out as therapists of yeah. like, how do I keep doing this in a way that feels like I'm not running myself into the ground or 
not respecting my own boundaries and taking care of myself. So even with groups, does it feel like um, it just kind of creates more space like in your own life or is there like kind of aspects of groups, I guess, where maybe we cannot have boundaries within running a group where we're actually, you know, needing to create more sustainability around being the facilitator of groups. Have you kind of found what that looks like? Oh my gosh, you're brilliant. <laughs> because yes, that we can, we can mess up and create the same cage in anything we create. So you're so right. Like we got to create boundaries in the group as well for ourselves and, and for the participants. So I found one place I needed to do that was in, like I offer asynchronous coaching when someone's in one of my programs, like they can ask me questions at any time and I'll give them a personal response. And one boundary I realized I had to come up with was saying, I'm going to come in on in, into the group on three different days of the week and give responses. Then I'm not going to be in there answering questions like on call, because even though I kind of want to, because they're always really interesting that I could feel in my body that was eventually going to burn me out. So setting like the expectation really clearly, instead of feeling like, no, it's urgent. People, it'll be more valuable if I'm there all the time, really trusting it's not urgent. And in fact, if I'm really chill and joyful and can come in and answer the questions when I'm ready, they're going to be better answers the whole group is going to feel the difference. I also think just like in a therapy practice, starting on time and ending on time is a really good idea. So like not, you know, sometimes I'll let it go like a minute beyond mm -hmm. when it's supposed to end, but I pretty much stick to that. And I think it creates a feeling of safety for the group and just knowing that they can trust the, the end point and, and have something else happen afterward. So things like that, having breaks where I say like, so for this week, I'm going to be not answering questions and then really sticking to that and knowing like, everybody's going to be okay, just relax and, and come back to it. So I think fighting urgency, fighting the feeling that you've got to be there at all times, uh, helps a lot, makes it much more sustainable. Yeah. And I like even thinking about it from like a participant's perspective, because groups that I've done, you know, when we start and end on time or when, you know, if they say, I'm only going to be doing this, or I'm only going to be answering questions here and they stick to that. I really respect that because I mm. kind of like those boundaries and that structure. I like it when I know what to expect. I know that they're going to follow through on what they said because it gives us just like a clear expectation and we can trust that it's going to be like that. Um, but I think when we're on the other side, we can feel like guilt or like, am I there enough? Like, am I supportive enough? Am I being too strict with these things? Like, should I be more relational? Which I think is a thing as therapists, we often struggle with of like, oh, like I'll just kind of bend the rules because I want to be there for people. But it's actually really nice on the other end to have it stick to kind of like those parameters so you know what to expect um, and you're kind of getting what you what you signed up for in a way. Yeah, I like that. And it's not necessarily, we're not necessarily there to make everybody happy all the time. I'm much more interested in 
people feeling safe enough and also people getting results. And sometimes those aren't the same things, like feeling happy at all times or feeling safe and getting results are not always the same thing. So I'm always looking for, you know, how can I make this container feel safe enough to move the agenda forward, even if it means I have to interrupt people. And, and I, I always tell people ahead of time, I'm going to be interrupting you with loving kindness at times. And it's just because I need to move us to a certain place. And yeah. that's not going to make me happy or them happy in the moment, but it's going to make a much better program. Yeah. And I think it's, it's pulling from even the therapy room too, mm -hmm. of this isn't always going to feel fun, you know, as the client or I won't, the therapist and the client might not always be happy with what you have to do, but it's creating that safe space so that change can happen. You know, that's like the whole yeah. point of it. That's something for me too, as a therapist, that's, I'm always trying to grow in that of, but I want them to be happy. That's like always this thing that I want. And I have to push against that because that's actually not what's most helpful for people sometimes. Yeah, you know, Priya Parker, who wrote The Art of Gathering, she said this brilliant thing that I just returned to over and over again. I probably will paraphrase it a little bit wrong, but she said like the, the host of a gathering, and so I think of that as like the facilitator of a program also, their responsibility is to hold the purpose of the gathering, not to make every single person feel happy at every moment. And the facilitator sometimes has to be willing to not make a particular person happy in the interest of holding that purpose that everyone's there for. And that makes everybody wow. get so much further than if you're like, let me see what this person needs. Let me see what that person needs. It's like, no, hold the purpose and move everybody forward. I love that too, because it kind of makes you take that perspective shift of like your why, why am I doing mm. this? What's the purpose of this? And my job and my responsibility is to just hold the purpose mm -hmm. and it's not to make like to people, please. The yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, do you have two go-to books that you feel like have been kind of pivotal or just helpful for you um, in general, group related, non-group related? Yeah. It's so hard to pick. I know everybody always says that. But the first one is going to be The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker that I just mentioned. Like that book is amazing if you're trying to build a program, build a really special experience for people. And then the other one that comes to mind is Company of One by Paul Jarvis. I'm really talking about how you can build a tiny and really impactful and really profitable business. Love that. Awesome. We will link to those below so people can check those out. I do have a question that came in if you'd be able to answer it. Of course. So Vaughn said, my wife and I just started a private practice speech therapy business. My big question is, how do we get referrals? Um, how do we deliver, should we hand deliver business cards? We are struggling. It kind of just sounds like in general, getting referrals, marketing. Do you have any tips for that on your therapy side of how to get clients? Yeah, a hundred percent. What a wonderful, what a wonderful business. Like what a great niche. So the main thing that I would put in place is a networking plan. So I know that's going to sound super old fashioned, but if there are a, a 
if you've got a referral network, like a small referral network of folks who really know your work and who have overlapping folks they work with, but they work with them in a different way, they know you, they trust you, that is going to build your business. There are a lot of other things you can do. Having a really effective website that speaks directly to your clients is probably the second most important thing in my opinion. But if you were only going to do one thing, and please don't just do one thing, but if you're going to just do one thing, I would say start having one-to-one conversations with other professionals who also work with the same folks and have your why in mind when you go to talk to them, but lean into how you can help them and lean into how you may actually end up referring people to them. So that gives them a reason to want to talk to you. And then they're naturally going to end up asking you about your work. But go into those conversations with no attachment to the outcome. So it's not like I'm going to meet with this person. I'm going to get a client. Yes, you will. But you don't know from who. You don't know when. So really going in and planting those seeds with a bunch of different professionals and building trust with them, that's one of the fastest, most effective ways to build a practice. And I wouldn't worry too much about business cards. Like you can have them, you can not have them. Mostly um, people are going to hold on to your contact information digitally. So I personally don't even bother with business cards anymore, Um, but they can be a good transitional object if you want. Yeah, I think the idea of just relationally getting to know different providers that are in a similar sphere, similar area, therapist, PT, uh, any kind of doctor. I think those are all really great ideas. And um, yeah, building that rapport and giving them something, kind of that whole idea of networking. I'm here for you, not just trying to get something from you um, works really well. So thanks so much for asking that question, Vaughn. Hopefully that was helpful to you and your wife. Uh, But to wrap things up, Annie, where can people find you? How can they connect with you? Uh, Maybe the group that you put on, what are those ways they can find you? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, if you're watching this and you're like, yeah, I want to move beyond private practice. I want to build my thing. Head over to rebeltherapist.me and you'll see I've got some free resources and you can also read about my five week, five to six week process that I've been talking about. So rebeltherapist.me and then I have a podcast, which is called Rebel Therapist. And the podcast is really good. I highly recommend it to you guys. I just subscribed to it. So excited to keep listening. Um, But thanks so much for being here today, Annie. This was a really insightful conversation. I know I took away a lot from it and I know everyone else did too. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. This was really fun. Of course.